Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Two spacecraft took off for Mars last week, and on July 30th, the launch window opens for a third, NASA's Perseverance rover. Three nations set out on three separate missions, all looking to shed light on a question that astronomers have been asking for centuries. Is there life on Mars? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Alok Jha, the Economist science correspondent. And coming up on today's show, why are scientists so obsessed with Mars? Will the next generation of missions find signs of life on the red planet? And if there is life, how do explorers make sure it's treated with respect? For centuries, astronomers have looked to the skies, curious about the celestial objects hanging above. One object that's particularly captivated their attention is our closest planetary neighbour, Mars. The nations of the world mobilise their armed might, rushing to defend the Earth against the unknown weapons of the super race from the Red Planet. And I can't think of anything more exciting than going out there and being among the stars. Becoming a multi-planet species. Who's the hell out of being a single planet species? For the ancient Romans, Mars was their god of war. Today, the planet named after him is where certain tech billionaires plan to relocate one day. It's fair to say that the fascination with the red planet has endured the ages. Philosophers have been watching the planet for thousands of years, and in the second half of the 20th century, the start of the space age, astronomers started sending probes. Canals on Mars started kind of the controversy of does life exist on the planet Mars? Emily drabeck Maunder is an astronomer at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, London. The first time these canals were actually seen was back in the 1800s. An Italian astronomer called Giovanni Schiaparelli looked at Mars through a telescope and saw that there looked like, almost like there were these black lines stretching across the surface of the planet Mars. And so originally he described these kind of darker features as the Italian word canali. So the translation of the word canali, it can mean a channel or a canal. The differences between these two words is very subtle, but a channel is a natural feature on the surface of a planet, and a canal is engineered. So several scientists at the time, you know, in the late 1800s, thought that there could be intelligent beings on Mars building canals, and actually that might be a way that these beings transport water across the surface of the planet. So from the polar ice caps that melt 
in a Martian summer, and then that would transport water across the planet through these canals. But then in the early missions from NASA, so the Mariner missions, dispelled this myth. And the Mariner 4 team now about to face its most momentous challenge. We're about to encounter the planet Mars. And actually, the early missions that went to Mars, it found that Mars was very different than early ideas of it. So not only is there kind of not any water that can be found on the surface of Mars in the form of lakes or rivers or anything like that, but Mars seemed to be almost like a cold desert. Amazing detail in them. The historic first close-up of another planet. Light and dark markings can be seen on Mars. In 1965, NASA's Mariner 4 whizzed past Mars at the height of US-Soviet tensions and the dawn of the space race. With two Sputniks orbiting the Earth simultaneously, the whole world began to speak about the triumph of Soviet science. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. The Mariner missions, and also the early Soviet Union missions, Mars 2 and 3, what they were designed to do was to either fly by or orbit the planet. And in those flybys and orbits, scientists got a better understanding of uh, kind of how the surface changes depending upon where you are on Mars. So in those missions, they found things like riverbeds, craters, extinct volcanoes, like the volcano Olympus Mons, which is actually the largest volcano in our solar system. It's three times higher than Mount Everest. They also found canyons and evidence of wind and water erosion. So there may have been water in the past on Mars. And also they looked at weather fronts, fog on Mars and things like that. But lessons from flybys or orbiting probes are limited. To find out more, the superpowers on Earth wanted to land on Mars. Earth shrinks smaller and smaller as the two Vikings head toward their Martian rendezvous. Vikings 1 and 2 were the first spacecraft that successfully landed on the planet. Vikings 1 and 2 were launched by NASA in August 1975. They were identical spacecraft, but they wanted to land them in two different places on Mars. And the places were chosen because they had evidence of water in the past on Mars. And so one location was the Golden Plain, and Viking 2 then landed on the Utopia Plain. So essentially in those missions, they were looking for evidence of current life on Mars. And some of the experiments did seem to indicate that there might be life on Mars. Essentially the landers mixed soil with other materials like nutrients and water, and then waited to see if there was a change in that material. And when there was evidence of a change, that could indicate that there's life, but it could also just mean there's other chemical means of producing that change. So that's why it's inconclusive that those missions showed if there was current life on Mars. And let me say, by the way, that we're looking primarily for microorganisms. Uh, it would be rather fruitless of us for, to look for horses on Mars. It was after the Viking missions, really, that there was a change in focus. And so instead of trying to understand if there was current life on Mars, there was a focus to understanding if there was past life on Mars and looking at past evidence of liquid water existing on Mars. So with the Spirit and Opportunity rovers, they were looking for evidence of past water and evidence of past life as well. 
In January 2004, two robot geologists named Spirit and Opportunity landed on opposite sides of Mars. With these two rovers, they did image and study some pretty amazing things on the surface of the planet. So they were the first rovers to look at things like dust devils and dust storms on the surface of the planet. And actually, the two rovers found evidence of hot water on Mars, but hot water existing in the past. And they found that because they found deposits of silica, which is the main ingredient for window glass. And so it was then thought that the silica formed around hot springs near volcanoes, similar to how silica would form on the Earth. And it's in these conditions that you find microbes or microorganisms that can live in these environments. And so there's a possibility then that life did exist on Mars in the past around these hot springs. But NASA was determined to find out more. See you, Jeff, is good. In 2011, it launched Curiosity, the largest and most capable rover ever sent to Mars. It's been going for the past eight years. So far, it's also traveled about 20 kilometers. Curiosity landed in Gale Crater. It is potentially a dry lake bed. What Curiosity was looking for in terms of life is it wanted to look for the environmental conditions for life. So again, where microbes could exist. It wanted to better understand how liquid water would have changed the environment of Mars in the past. And also it kind of wanted to study the habitability of Mars so that if we do send humans to the planet Mars, how would that impact them really? And so some of the things that Curiosity has found, it's found the chemicals that are needed for life on the planet. And so it's found chemicals like water, carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, and things like that. It's also found that lakes and rivers existed on Mars for one million years or longer, so that's more than enough time for life to exist on the planet. It's also detected changes in Mars's atmosphere. So there's a change in methane in the atmosphere. Methane can actually be produced by life, and so this change in methane could potentially be produced by life on the planet. Curiosity is still trundling around Gale Crater on Mars. Every day, it uncovers a little more about our neighbouring planet. But early next year, it will no longer be the only rover operating on the surface of Mars. It's been a busy few months for Mars explorers. While most of the world has been locked down, scientists and engineers from three countries have been preparing to lift off. The flurry of traffic is partly thanks to a happy alignment between Earth and Mars in their respective orbits around the Sun. The planets are at their closest approach to each other, meaning a journey between the two will only take six months. This occurs every couple of years. The first spacecraft to take advantage of this alignment took off on the 20th of July. The United Arab Emirates launched Al-Amal, or HOPE. The HOPE Mars mission is meant to address three primary science objectives. Sarah Al-Amiri is Deputy Project Manager of the Emirates Mars mission. She's also her country's Minister of State for Advanced Sciences. And one of those goals is understanding the historical evolution of Mars's atmosphere 
from one that was wet and much more dense than the atmosphere that we see today to a thin and arid and dry atmosphere. And the reason for that overall understanding is just to understand what happens to a planet that had liquid water on its surface and has transformed to a point where it can't host water in its liquid form and pure format on its surface. When the Al-Amal orbiter reaches Mars in February 2021, it will study the planet's atmosphere to gain an understanding of its weather systems. We have an ultraviolet spectrometer that's focusing on the upper atmosphere of Mars, both the exosphere and thermospheric measurements. And the way we're able to do that is using the orbit that we have. The science orbit is at its closest point, 20,000 kilometers from the surface of Mars. At its furthest point, 43,000 kilometers from the surface of Mars. At our closest point, we act sort of like a geostationary satellite. So we see the same location of Mars at different times of the day. And that gives us one focal point of making measurements of Mars. Once we get to our furthest point, Mars is spinning faster under us. So you're collecting multiple locations of Mars during different times of the mission. We also observe for an entire Martian year so that we better understand the changes that happen throughout each season. The UAE hopes that its mission will make it a contender in space exploration. Al-Amal is time to arrive at Mars on the nation's 50th anniversary. A country that's 50 years since its inception. A country that 50 years ago didn't have basic infrastructure of road networks, of schools, of universities. And we had to do it at a much faster rate than any other country because if you want to be an advanced country in the world, we started really late. You need to sometimes inject fuel for change across the system several times to to create disruptive uh, change. And this is what this mission was meant to do. There's no doubt that if it works well, Al-Amal will be a remarkable achievement. Getting to Mars is hard. Just three days after Al-Amal launched, China's Tianwen-1 took off. After a failed attempt in 2011, China's new mission consists of an orbiter, a lander and a rover. The plan is for the spacecraft to enter Mars orbit in February 2021. The lander will be deployed to the surface a few months after it arrives. China's space agency has not given much away about Tianwen-1. What they have said is that it will study the distribution of water ice on Mars, a key question to whether or not life was once possible on the planet. Officials have also said that the mission will make detailed surveys of the Martian surface. This is expected to last around 90 days. As the UAE and China join the elite Mars Club, NASA, the undisputed leader in interplanetary exploration, is not holding back. Perseverance is the most sophisticated mission we've ever sent to the red planet's surface. Laurie Glaze is the director of NASA's Planetary Science Division. We couldn't be more excited about it. Some of Perseverance's main activities will be in astrobiology, which is the study of how life comes to be, the environments that can support life, and the search to see if life exists anywhere else beyond Earth. This is the first rover mission designed to seek signs of past microbial life by collecting and caching rock and soil samples that will be returned to Earth by future missions. The rover's instruments will also look for evidence of ancient habitable environments and monitor environmental conditions, 
which will help us better understand how to protect future human explorers. Perseverance will land in Jezero Crater. Jezero is host to one of the best preserved deltas on the surface of Mars. Katie Stack Morgan works in NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. Deltas form when rivers enter open bodies of water and deposit rocks, sand, and potentially organic carbon in the layers of that delta. Those layers are one of the prime astrobiology targets for the Perseverance mission. We'll be searching for biosignatures, patterns, textures, or substances that require the influence of life to form. One of those biosignatures could be very old, rock-like structures formed by layers of microbes. The stromatolite is a fossilized microbial mat. Each one of these layers represents the growth of that mat over time. Now, if you looked at that rock, you wouldn't know for sure that it was a potential biosignature. But when you couple the textures, as well as the chemical composition, the mineralogy, and the distribution of organic carbon, you can start to build a case that that rock could only have formed under the influence of life. So using that fine-scale detail, coupled with the geologic context, we're going to do our best to identify, collect, and document the most compelling scientific cache of samples that we possibly can to address some big-picture questions, fundamental questions, including, was life ever present on Mars? The Perseverance rover has 23 cameras, seven scientific instruments, two microphones, and an autonomous helicopter. Some of those instruments, like the Sherlock and Pixel instruments on the end of the rover's arm, which provide those mapping capabilities, as well as RIMFACs in the body of the rover that uses radar to study the subsurface of Mars, are brand new. We've never sent them to Mars before. Those instruments on the end of the rover's arm that have the ability to map in very fine detail chemical composition, mineralogy, and the presence of organic carbon in a way that we've never been able to do before. Curiosity has the ability to detect organic carbon, and it has detected organic carbon, but we haven't been able to necessarily link the presence of that organic carbon in organics to a particular textures or patterns that we see in the rock that we think could have been left behind by life. Also, instead of grinding the rocks into powders, we're actually collecting preserved cores of rock that we can bring back to Earth and study. So I think that's really how we distinguish ourselves in advancing the search for potential biosignatures on the planet Mars. Perseverance is part of an ambitious, decade-long plan to collect and seal rock samples from the surface of Mars. These will hopefully be collected by follow-up missions sometime in the coming decade. We're really in a great position right now where we have developed a fantastic partnership with European Space Agency, which actually allows us to get those samples back a little bit earlier than had originally been planned. Right now, we're working on and developing the plans for that Mars sample return mission. We're planning towards a launch around 2026, which would then bring those samples back in 2031. The European Space Agency's Fetch rover could arrive as early as 2028 and will look for the 30 or so titanium tubes that Perseverance will leave behind on the surface of Mars. Once collected, the tubes will be brought back to Earth by a system of relay spacecraft. Returning NASA's samples isn't the European Space Agency's most immediate Mars objective, however. In 2016, the European and Russian space agencies together launched the first part of the ExoMars program. The purpose of its missions was to gather potential evidence for past life on Mars. That first mission saw the Trace Gas Orbiter arrive at Mars. This is designed to measure the concentration of rare gases in the Martian atmosphere that might be related to life processes, such as methane, water vapour or nitrogen dioxides. 
The next stage of ExoMars is a rover called Rosalind Franklin. Its instruments will be even more sophisticated than those on NASA's Perseverance. These instruments are more capable than any we have flown before. Jorge Vega is the lead scientist for the ExoMars mission at the European Space Agency. We have MoMA, which is by far the largest and most expensive instrument on the rover. This uses for the first time a UV laser to extract organic molecules. And the beauty of this uh, laser desorption technique is that the deposition of energy is so fast that it doesn't have time to dissociate these perchlorates, these oxychlorine molecules that are everywhere on Mars. They have been complicating the measurements of Curiosity, Phoenix, and Viking. So we have high, high hopes on being able to navigate around uh, this problem by using this new technique. Perhaps Rosalind Franklin's most important tool, though, will be a drill that can collect samples from below the surface. This will be crucial for recovering material in which any organic molecules present can be found in a good state of preservation. The issue with Mars is that the atmosphere is very thin. The surface atmospheric pressure is in the order of 6 millibars compared to about 1,013 here on Earth. So the ionizing radiation, mostly coming from the center of the galaxy, penetrates through the atmosphere and slams into the surface and goes into the subsurface. So over many millions of years, this ionizing radiation acts like gazillion little knives, slowly cutting away the functional groups of the organic molecules you would like to hopefully discover. So the idea of a drill is that if you go deep enough, then the material between the place where you collect the sample and the top surface would act as a shield. And we've done quite a bit of modeling and and tests in the lab, and the results suggest that penetration in the order of one and a half meters would be amazing. So we went for two meters because it's something that is technologically doable, even though it is very challenging. The drill is like a a Swiss watch. It's a a wonder to contemplate. It's full of little mechanisms and, and shiny pieces. But all of that will have to wait for now. A combination of technical difficulties and the challenges of operating a European collaboration during a global pandemic has meant that the launch of the Rosalind Franklin rover has been delayed until the next alignment between Earth and Mars in 2022. Coming up, while the scientific knowledge from the next stage of Mars missions will be invaluable, the footprints of human activity on the Red Planet are becoming ever more intrusive. If there is a Martian ecosystem, how should scientists think about future exploration of the planet? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Aside from Earth, Mars is the most studied planet in the solar system. Its surface is swiftly becoming littered with landers and rovers. Governments have spent billions getting to the red planet, but that might not be the only cost. We can't undo whatever we do on Mars, especially if we contaminate it globally. Sarah Rugheimer is an astrophysicist at the University of Oxford. We should first explore those environments, being as clean as we can with our instruments to try to avoid contamination. Since in our exploration of trying to find Martian life already through meteorites that have landed on our surface, one of the biggest lessons over and over again is the problem of Earth contamination in our samples. There are these extremophiles on the Earth that are nearly impossible to kill. Emily drabek Maunder again. A good example is Tersicacus phoenicis. It's a bacteria that's only ever been found on two places on the Earth in clean rooms that are used to build spacecraft. And so to put that into perspective, these clean rooms are designed to have minimal amounts of outside contaminants like dust and microbes. The air is filtered in the clean rooms. The surfaces are cleaned with alcohol and hydrogen peroxide. Items are heated to high temperatures in order to kill potential bacteria on surfaces. And people actually work in these environments in protective suits. However, this particular microbe is still found in these environments. That includes environments that built NASA's Curiosity rover. So it's possible that we've already sent some of these extremophiles to Mars. And so it's something that we really need to keep in mind for the future. If we do find life on Mars as well, we need to possibly consider that actually that life didn't form on the planet Mars, that we accidentally brought it over when we sent the spacecraft out to the planet. If life from Earth, microbes or otherwise, ends up on Mars, it could have grave consequences. It's very clear that Mars doesn't have kangaroos jumping around on its surface. You know, it doesn't have the same level of biosphere that that Earth does. And so if life exists on Mars, which it may, or it may have in the past, and we find fossilized evidence of past life, it's likely to exist in small niches, you know, maybe in the subsurface where it's a bit warmer and there's liquid water in those types of environments. But because Earth life is so uh, adaptable already to our own planet, it could be that the Earth life takes over those environmental niches, so to speak, because it has had more time to evolve in different ways here. But there is a much bigger ethical issue at stake too. I think the real risk is that we sort of destroy a pristine environment. When we think of ethics and life on Earth, we tend to think of only animals and plants. But most of Earth's biomass is microbial life, and we really don't care about microbial life in a moral sense on Earth. You know, you kill millions of microbes when you brush your teeth, for example, and we don't really think about that as as being an atrocity. But microbial life on another planet, especially if that is the only type of life, I think that life has a higher moral status because of its rarity. So, you know, should we leave Mars to the Martians if we do find even microbial life there? These are ethical considerations that I think we need to grapple with as a planet before embarking on any colonization sort of missions and, and get wider input of voices from all of humanity. Before any efforts to colonise Mars begin, hopefully the samples collected by Perseverance will be brought back to Earth. If they do contain traces of Martian life, what are the chances that these could harm Earth life? 
Us contaminating Mars is probably more of an issue than Martian life contaminating Earth. And, and there's several reasons for this. One is we can have a clean lab, kind of isolated uh, system set up here, as well as the biochemistry, if it is truly different life, probably wouldn't interact with our biochemistry very well. So I think those risks, while they are present, and we should absolutely take precautions by having high quality sealed lab environments to study this for both reasons, you know, so that we don't accidentally contaminate the sample with our own life, as well as avoiding that contamination. There's a problem with planets. There's no enforceable laws, let alone officers to enforce them. There's a diversity of opinions within scientists of how to approach it. I do think that because of that diversity of opinions, it's worth not rushing. We do have time. There's no reason to go to Mars in, as humans in 2030s that wouldn't equally be served by just going several you know, decades or even 100 years later. And so I think taking the time such that we act mindfully is one thing that I feel I hear echoed in a lot of scientific circles. But then, of course, you know, it's, it's hard to necessarily stop a, an individual country or a private space enterprise from, from not doing that. So what's the solution? How can these international conversations begin? Even with other missions, so for example, in the Cassini mission, that sent a spacecraft all the way out to Saturn, there was the worry that the Cassini spacecraft would accidentally seed life on some of Saturn's moons. So these moon environments actually have liquid water below their surfaces, and so there is a possibility that there is life on these moons. So when Cassini was running out of fuel, the decision was made to actually drive Cassini into the planet Saturn instead of risk the possibility that the Cassini spacecraft would actually collide with one of Saturn's moons and risk having any of that life contaminated by that spacecraft. This begs the question, if we can't decide how to protect other planets, should we even be exploring them at all? I think it's one of the most fundamental questions to humanity, are we alone? So I do think we should explore it carefully trying to mitigate any potential damage that we cause to the best of our ability. And, you know, if we find evidence of life to be very cautious in how we go about exploring that life. Exoplanet life does also hold a different moral weight, but I would say that it's, in my opinion, it's worth finding out if there's life out there. And the solar system is one of the best places to look. However, we should do that with caution and care and try to not in our bumbling efforts, you know, of our infancy and in space exploration, destroy something without really cautiously approaching that with all the care we can first. In the next decade, we're likely to find an answer to the age-old question of whether or not there is, or ever has been, life on Mars. If the evidence suggests not, many people will likely be disappointed, but it almost certainly won't be the end of the story for the search for life beyond Earth. There's a lot of good places to look for life in the universe. So we could look in the outer solar system on Europa, uh, Enceladus, these icy moons. Titan is a very interesting place to look for life because Titan's uh, doesn't have liquid water, but it has liquid ethane and methane. And that life would be totally different 
from ours. So I think that's a fascinating place to look. There's a potential for life on Venus in the upper atmosphere where temperatures and pressures are more conducive to Earth, though it's hard to see where the chemistry would happen there, but people have certainly proposed that. So I think, you know, there's many places within our solar system to look. And the solar system provides a unique opportunity because we could actually look with a microscope, so to speak, and see the microbes wriggling around or see the fossilized evidence of past life. Finding life elsewhere in the solar system, whatever form it may be in, would be transformative for humanity. Our species has pondered this question for hundreds of years and the answers could be on the horizon. We are in extraordinary times right now with the coronavirus pandemic, and yet we have in fact persevered. Let's go find out if there was life on Mars. And we'll be sure to take you there on Babbage. Our thanks to Emily drabek Monda, Sarah Al-Amiri, Katie Stack-Morgan, Laurie Glaze, Jorge Vago, and Sarah Rugheimer. To read more, subscribe to The Economist. Head to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory rate. The link is in the show notes. And while you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, but waiting to move to a colony on Mars, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.